Well, very good morning to you all. May I add my welcome to Luke's. My name is Campbell. I help to run the fellowship groups here at All Souls. Do keep Job open there on page 509. Last Monday at 10.24 a.m., an earthquake of 7.5 magnitude hit southern Turkey. During the week, the death toll rose steadily and passed the 20,000 mark, as I was writing this. Most of us have probably already seen the harrowing images on the news of bodies being excavated and hopes of survivors dropping with each passing day. It's been a terrible, terrible tragedy, a terrible chapter in the life of our world, as many lives have been wiped out and many more made homeless. Their only fault being that they happen to live on a fault line. Of all the questions that we have to grapple with, the question of why suffering on a mass scale happens uh, so regularly to seemingly innocent people, that is surely one of the most challenging questions that causes us the most difficulty. We can never seem to get our heads around why God would allow such suffering to happen. Often when people give up as Christians and turn their backs on God, it's because they can't fathom why some acute suffering has come into their lives. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be making our way through the book of Job in the Old Testament, a book book written for the very purpose of helping us to know how we are supposed to relate to God rightly when suffering happens. Now, Job forms part of the body of books in the Old Testament called uh, the Wisdom Books. Their purpose is to help believers navigate through life with the right set of spectacles on, uh, so to speak. And the Wisdom Books all start with a basic axiom about God, which is this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here it is as it appears uh, in the book of Job. This is from chapter 28. And God said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. And you can find this line repeated in the Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes as well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's assumed in the Bible that this is the starting point of everything. To fear God, uh, that is to live your life recognizing God that Uh, recognizing that God is totally and completely in charge of absolutely everything, that he holds total and complete power and authority over every inch of the universe, and that we are 100% subject to his will, which is a terrifying thought if you think about it. That is what it means to fear God, and therefore to turn away from evil because God hates evil. Well, that in the Bible, that is your basic starting point with God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the book of Job is written because when suffering comes, that's when we find it hardest to fear the Lord and keep going with our trust in him. It's a foundational book of the Bible. And as we ease ourselves into a new year together as church family here at the 1130 service, navigating through a world full of suffering... Uh, My prayer is that this book will be like an anchor for us over the next four weeks. It's a very challenging book, but it really is a book that will make sure that our faith is built upon the right kind of foundation. 
Well, let's introduce Job and find out a little bit about his story, shall we? If I can get there, we go. Brilliant. In the land of Uz, this is chapter 1, verse 1, if you want to follow along again. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people in the East. So here is Job, a man living in a place uh, called the land of Uz. We don't know exactly where that was or exactly when this is set or really anything about Job other than what this uh, book tells us. None of that matters too much. The important point is, for the purposes of the story, is that Job is a man who is upright and blameless and fears the Lord and shuns evil. That's what matters about Job. He is a man who embodies our basic axiom that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and to turn away from evil is understanding. He is a wise man. He's the kind of guy we would have put on our PCC. He's the kind of guy we probably would have invited to lead a fellowship group, a roots group, um, an Aslan group, a Hope Explored group, and probably even the women's Bible study on a Wednesday morning. He is, to use the technical term, a bit of a legend. And Job is also an incredibly blessed man. He has a massive family, verse 2, we're told. Seven sons um, and three daughters. I think the author wants us to think that that's a blessing rather than a curse. But if you you felt sorry for his wife, I would quite understand. Um, I met up with a friend recently who had just had their fourth child. And he said, yes, I think we've discovered that three and a half was our limit. So um, <laughs> if you sympathize with Job's wife. But I think we're supposed to see that Job is very blessed to have ten children, this massive family. And not just a big family, he has a huge family business as well. 7,000 sheep equals lamb and mutton to provide many towns and settlements with a regular supply of meat for a competitive price. 3,000 camels means trade caravans all across the Middle East. 500 yoke of oxen means many fields can be plowed. And 500 donkeys means a whole industry of flour grinding mills and many servants to manage the whole thing. In other words, he's simultaneously running Acado, Amazon, and Hovis. Just in case we were in any doubt, we're told in verse 3, he was the greatest man in the East. But what about Job's family? He may have been an upright man himself, but was he able to keep his children in check? Well, we're told in verse 4 that his sons and daughters used to hold some killer parties. Oh dear, it's not sounding very good, is it? But at the end of each of them, Job would take care to make a burnt offering for each of his children, just in case any of them had sinned against God in their hearts and cursed him. Which, by the way, tells you that there wasn't any outward signs of debauchery in his children. These were big parties, certainly, but they were controlled, civilized. They were probably all sitting around drinking schleer and playing board games. (laughs) There were no outward signs of defiance against God. So Job made burnt offerings for each of his children just in case they had sinned in their hearts against God in secret. Job was a very upright man, a very God-fearing man. He loved the Lord and he cared about his and his family's relationship with God right to the core. 
Now, the way the opening two uh, chapters of this book work is a little bit like a play. So in verse 6, we're suddenly whisked from that scene with Job up to a sort of heavenly boardroom meeting between God and the angelic party. And the angels have all gathered before God for a meeting, and Satan is among them. Now, that might raise all sorts of questions straight away. What's Satan doing there? Why is he just sort of strolling about uh, with the other angels? And it's possible, of course, that this book isn't trying to represent reality as it really is in the heavenly realms. It might be that this is a simplified version just for the sake of the story. But either way, the important thing about Satan in this book is that he has a particular role. He has a job to do. In fact, his name, Satan, literally means the adversary, or the Satan, you could translate it if that makes it easier to understand. In this heavenly boardroom meeting, his role is to be an adversary, to point out all of the wrongdoings that are happening on earth, and to grill God about it, a little bit like at Prime Minister's Question Time. To which God... Uh, turns to Satan in his role as the adversary, and he says to Satan in verse 9, sorry, not in verse 9, in verse 8, he says to him, Have you considered my servant Job, Satan? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan replies to him, verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? In other words, you can't be serious, God. You know, surely you're, surely you're pulling my leg here. What are we supposed to believe? That this incredibly rich and blessed man is upright thanks to his own integrity. Of course not. No, the only reason he appears that way is because you've made his life incredibly cushy. He's not really an upright man at all. Oh yeah, certainly he, he, he sacrifices a sheep. Um, at the end of uh, one of his kids' parties. He sacrifices one of his 7,000 sheep. What a hero. What a hero. No, he only respects you because you've made life easy for him. In fact, let me prove it for you, God. Verse 11. Stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything that he has is in your power, but on the man himself... Do not lay a finger. Scene three, and back to the earthly level again. One day, Job is enjoying his morning coffee, checking the Premier League results on his phone. It's just a very ordinary day, when all of a sudden, his life is completely turned upside down. As swiftly and as suddenly as an earthquake. A messenger runs up, covered in sweat. He can tell by the look on his face that this is going to be bad news. The Sabaeans have attacked the fields, and they've taken off all of the oxen and the donkeys. Nobody saw it coming. They're all gone, Job. A second messenger runs up. You're not going to believe your ears, Job. But a freak lightning storm fell on the sheep paddock. And the very dry grass, well, it just, it just suddenly came alight, and it spread everywhere. And they're all lost, all the servants and the sheep, and I'm the only one left. A third messenger runs up. Disastrous news, Job. An organized Chaldean raiding party has taken out the entire party of caravans. They must have been planning this for months. They had three organized groups, and they completely dismantled us. I'm the only one who survived. Ten minutes ago, Job was the greatest man in the East. Now suddenly, Ocado, Amazon, and Hobus are all completely gone. And then a fourth messenger comes running up. Verse 18. 
Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept from the desert and it struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. At this point, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And then the author adds this final line, which is very important as we read on through the book. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Well, scene four, and we're back in the heavenly boardroom meeting again. And now we're into chapter two, which we didn't have time to read, so I'll take us through it. And the atmosphere is tense as Satan walks in once more. Everyone knows what's happened with Job. um, And all eyes are focused on God and Satan to see what's going to happen next. Verse three, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin without reason. At which point Satan laughs a sarcastic laugh. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones. And he will surely curse you to your face. You've proved nothing yet, Satan says. You've barely even started. All that's happened is that Job has been set back a little bit. He's a smart guy. Give him a couple of years. He'll manage to get all those businesses back again. He'll be back on his feet. And the whole exercise will have been pointless. And you prove nothing. But if you let me take away his health then there's no way he'll be able to recover. He'll be stuck in poverty for the rest of his life. And then we'll know if he's a really upright man. Then we'll really know, won't we? Verse 7, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. So here is Job now sleeping on the floor of a dingy studio flat. He's looking at all the legal documents that have come in the post. Damages that he's going to have to pay relatives of the servants who've died in all the catastrophes on his land. And he's wondering where on earth he's going to get all the money from now. When his phone rings and it's the GP and the GP says to him, Job, the tests have come through and I'm afraid I've got some very bad news for you. A week later, Job is in such agony that he's using a piece of broken pottery, can you imagine, to scrape the sores on his skin just to give himself a bit of momentary relief from the pain. And again, the author concludes this scene with the point that we're supposed to take away from this just so that it's absolutely clear. In all of this, Job did not sin. Even after this additional disaster, when Job has been afflicted with everything that Satan can think of, Even then, he won't curse God, and he maintains his integrity. 
Well, that's the introduction to this book, and we're really just setting the scene for the whole thing at this point. It's going to take us all of four weeks for Job to wrestle with the suffering that he's gone through, why God allowed these terrible disasters to come upon him. So it's going to take us until week four to get to the real um, answer and heart of what is going on in this book. Um, so you'll have to be patient as we, as we go through this over the next couple of weeks. If you can't make the, the whole series, do have a listen to the recordings online as we go and see how it all works out. But for now, let me make three observations about this introduction that we need to be really clear on as we go forward um, in the book. So the first one is this. That Job loses absolutely everything. This is our first um, observation. The whole point of why Job is being used as a case study for this book is because the sense of loss is supposed to be absolutely overwhelming. It's the greatest possible amount of loss that anyone could really imagine for any one person. Job begins as the greatest man in the East and he ends up with nothing left, scraping his skin, sitting in ashes. And so the story is supposed to draw us in so that everybody can relate to it on some level. Because all of us have suffered loss of material items or loss of loved ones or loss of health in circumstances that seem uh, totally chaotic and random. Um, For some of us, that might have only happened on a fairly minor level. For others of us, we may have been hit with tragedies that we're going to have to live with for the rest of our lives. I know around the room today, there are plenty of people who will be reading this and thinking, yeah, I can see something of my own story and what's going on with Job. But we're all supposed to be drawn into the story because we can resonate with his experience on one level or another. This book is for all of us. Second observation that we need to be clear on is that Job's suffering and misfortune isn't his fault. It's integral as we read through the rest of the book that we see that this is not his fault. No part of the loss or calamity he faces can be chalked up to some kind of misconduct on his part or sin against God or anything like that. This is the the whole point of the interchange between God and Satan, of course. The whole point is that Job is suffering not because he has sinned, but because he hasn't sinned, and Satan wants to test that. And the author spells it out for us. That even after the suffering, Job is blameless in the way that he reacts. So Job's suffering is not at all due to his own fault. And conversely, the flip side of the point, God definitely is the one to blame for Job's suffering, if I can put it that way. It might be tempting to think that Satan is to blame for all of this, because he's the one who incites God to bring the calamities upon Job. But Satan is not the one with ultimate authority in this story, is he? He was only allowed to do what he could do because God gave him the permission both times. The second time he came back to God and he said, I couldn't do everything because you didn't allow me to. Now let me do the rest. Unfortunately, because of medieval uh, art and centuries of um, looking at images of um, Satan as being some sort of red guy with horns and a pitchfork, and more recently in cartoons, and he might pop up from time to time and you know tempt Homer Simpson to eat a donut or something like that, it's so we we have this image of Satan in our mind's eye that, that that comes so readily that that's what he's like, and that there's this sort of tug of war going on between God and Satan, where God's trying to do good and Satan's coming around and he's doing um, all the disaster. But that's not what's going on here, is it? Satan is only allowed to do what God gives him permission to do in this setting. It's crystal clear in the narrative, and we need to see that plainly so that we feel the punch of the rest of the book. 
All of the responsibility for what happened falls on God himself and God alone. This is meant to be a very provocative case study to get us thinking. But third point, Job is right not to curse God for it. And this is where the real challenge of the book lies. Job is absolutely right not to curse God. The whole of the rest of the book hinges on this tension between points two and three. Yes, it's God's responsibility that Job has suffered. But also, yes, Job is right not to curse God for what has happened. And as we read on a bit, it's a little bit like walking a tightrope between those two points. If we conclude that this is somehow Job's fault and God isn't responsible, we fall off the tightrope one way. But if we accuse God of injustice and curse him, then we've fallen off the tightrope the other way. Because, of course, every instinct wells up within us to object at this point. Surely that can't be right. Surely there is a contradiction here. Surely if God has done this to Job, and it isn't Job's fault, then surely Job is within his rights to conclude that God must be a monster And the author really spins it out. He really spins out Job's suffering blow by blow so that we're led down the garden path and tempted to think that God is in the wrong. You get the oxen and then the sheep and then the camels and then finally his own family. But then when you thought it wasn't possible to lose any more, chapter 2, turns out Satan has a grand finale up his sleeve. You thought that life couldn't get any more miserable for Job? Oh yes it can. There's another whole round of suffering to come. And in fact, we're invited to consider cursing God through the character of Job's wife, who we skipped over as we went through the narrative in chapter 2. But have a look back down at chapter 2, verse 9. She says to him, after all of this, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And we're supposed to be thinking, she's got a point. Surely there comes a point where you're justified in cursing God for the suffering that you've had. We can tolerate a little bit of it and keep on coming to church and so on. But there comes a point where you feel like you're justified in telling God that he's in the wrong and cursing him for it. Audrey was telling me about a time when she was uh, younger, when tragedy hit her family. Um, Her older brother contracted cancer and fought an eventually losing battle in his late teens. You can imagine the permanent scar that that left with the family, a scar that never really heals and you just have to live with it. But then about 10 years later on, her younger brother's daughter, Audrey's niece, developed a brain tumour at the age of one. And that meant lots of nights in a hospital, a permanent facial impairment and more health issues further down the line. And Audrey said she remembers when she got that second piece of news, her confusion at the time, that one family should get hit with two rounds of serious illness like that. Surely one round is enough for a family. With one round, you can just about say what Job says in chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be blessed and praised. But with round two, it just feels like God is deliberately rubbing salt in the wound. And at that point, you're tempted to think that Job's wife is in the right. Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. For her, Job's wife, there clearly comes a cutoff point. There clearly comes a point where you can no longer say that God is a just and sovereign God. And the only choice 
is to curse him for what he has done and tell him he's in the wrong. But Job replies to her in chapter 2, verse 10, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Because, of course, if Job had listened to his wife and cursed God, then that would have proved Satan's point. Satan's challenge to God was that humanity only ever truly fears him as long as life is rosy. And he claimed that you just need to make life harder and harder and harder until at some point, even Job will break. Even Job will curse God if life gets hard enough. And so Job is right in his response. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble, even when his suffering has reached the maximum level? And if we don't think that, then every time we sing a song or we say some words of liturgy in church, we should be honest with ourselves and admit that there's an unspoken caveat in our minds. To God be the glory, great things he has done, as long as life is going well for me. Praise my soul, the king of heaven, as long as life is going well for me. Even the kids' songs. Our God is a great big God and he holds us in his hands as long as life is going well for me. Well, our time is almost up, and uh, I wonder how you are feeling as we've got to the end of this introduction to the book of Job. If it feels like there's much more to be said, don't worry, we're just setting the scene at this point in the series. And if it feels like what we said so far is very challenging, then that's right also. It's supposed to be a very challenging book that really gets to the heart of things. And especially for those of us in the room who feel suffering so acutely in our own lives at the moment, we may need courage and prayer as we read on. But this book has been written for our good. And if we work through it together, its purpose is to make sure that our faith is built on a really robust foundation, the right foundation, and not a wonky one. It will anchor us through the years ahead if we let it do its work. And furthermore, we do need to remember that behind all of this is a God who genuinely is good and is working for the good of his world. We'll get a snapshot of this right at the end of the book. In the end, God does restore everything back to Job and more. It's a snapshot of the immense generosity and goodness of God towards those who fear him. Not necessarily in this life now for all of us, but a snapshot ultimately of what God will do in the new creation We have to remember that through all of this, our God is a sovereign God, yes, but he is not a distant and uncaring God, not a bit of it. In fact, as we read on the Bible, we know that he is a God who is prepared to enter into a world full of hardship himself, to weep by the graveside of a friend, to be betrayed by those close to him, to go to a cross and face immense physical and emotional suffering himself. A God who says to everyone, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The book of Job will help us to put God in his right and proper place, and it will help us to appreciate his grace towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ all the more.